Okay. So we should take this opportunity now to really be very intent and put a lot of focus on our meditation while we're listening to this talk at the moment and try to develop samadhi while we're, while we're listening to this talk. Today is, is it's the Padimoka day. Um, there's only there's only one upasata left before the end of the pansa. You know, we've you, we've been here in the pansa for for two months and fifteen days already, and what we what we what we determined to do before the pansa, we determined to stay here for the full three months. So there's only there's only one upasata left. There's only fifteen days left. So you can see, looking back over this time, you can see how quickly quickly the time has passed already. At the start, when we first come in and we first ordain as a new monk, we look at the, the range retreat period, the three-month period, and we think, oh, that's a really long time, that's going to take so long to get through. But when we actually get through it, we can see how quickly the time's passed, passed away from it. Once again, it's only 15 more days till the end of the pansa. So you can, you can see this and see how your life reflects this as well. When you were born, when you were born, you, you grew up and it seems like a long time, however long it's been now, but if, once you look back over it, you can see that it's, it's really gone very, very fast. And it continues, to, and it continues to pass away. It passes, whatever state it's in now, it, it'll eventually, it'll pass into old age, sickness, and eventually it's gonna, uh, your life is going to end in death. So thinking about death, thinking about Maranamasati, is something that's very, very important and, and is something that keeps you alert and, and aware of this process. You should always be recollecting, um, thinking over in your own mind, uh, this life, it isn't something that's for sure, but one thing that is for sure is death. You know, in the end, I will definitely have to die. There's no way I can get around this. Um, use, use the recollection of Maranamasati. Use the recollection of death as much as you can. What this will help you to do is to get rid of any worries and anxieties in the mind about, about future, future occurrences. This is something Ajahn Chah would emphasize a lot. He would say, if greed, hatred and delusion are very strong in the mind, and if, for example, you're using the breath and you can't seem to focus on the breath, you're being caught up in, in greed, hatred and delusion a lot, then the, the death recollection, this is something that's very powerful and this is something that will bring the, mind, bring the mind back very easily. You can investigate at that point in time and look at your own mind and see, you know, this greed, hatred and delusion that I'm experiencing at the moment is, you know, why, you know, what's the good of it? What is, what is the use of it? Why am I experiencing it? Why, why get involved in these things? Why take greed, hatred and delusion as something important? In the end, I'm just going to have to die and I'm going to have to leave, leave all these things behind. The, the deeper you go into the mind and the more you see the mind and the more the, you see these tricks of the mind, the more you'll understand and know that, that one day you have to die. Um, you'll see that these things just arise and pass away. you see this process happening. The more you can understand this, this point that one day you will have to die and leave all this behind, this is when the mind will start to become very, it'll become a lot more calm. Greed, hatred, the greed, hatred and delusion that is there, it'll start to dissipate and go down. When, the more you think about the recollection of death and the more you think about death, this will give rise to more dispassion towards the world and, and the, the trivialities of the world. 
the more you think about this, the more you will see the natural state of the world and the natural state of everything around us, what we call as a pawatam. You, this, this knowing, this understanding of nature will start to arise. And it doesn't matter what posture you're in, whether you're sitting, you're standing, you're walking, whatever you're doing, you'll, this is something that you will know within your own mind. You'll start to see and you'll start to under, understand that every, every minute of your life is moving towards death. It's like every step that you take is you're getting closer and closer to death with every step. You'll see this because you'll understand every, you'll understand that everything in the conditioned world is simply just arising, it remains for a period of time and then it passes away. When this, when you start to have these kinds of insights, this is when, this is the start of Panya starting to arise. This is the start of wisdom. Uh, and what, specifically what we call Pawanamaya Panya, the wisdom that arises through meditation. When we first start to practice, we do have a certain kind of wisdom. Um, from, from listening to talks, reading books, uh, all these different kinds of things, from, from memory, from things that we've thought about and with things that we've pondered over. But when the more meditation you do and the more calm the mind becomes, this will give rise to a deeper sense of, of wisdom, this Pawanamaya Panya. And when this Sapawa comes, this knowing of natural phenomena of the world, when this starts to arise, that you can't take this body with you and this, this body is something that's not your, yourself. This is what gives rise to true dispassion in the mind. When you've experienced this calm for a, for a period of time, you'll start to notice after the calm, the mind starts to move a little bit and you'll know that the thoughts, and you'll see the thoughts start to come up and at that point in time, if the mind is very strong and, and mindfulness is very strong, you'll start to see that this is simply, this thought that's just arising is just a thought. There's no inherent self in this thought. This, is, this thought is just something we give labels to. It's just a convention. Um, you'll see that it just arises and it passes away. There's nothing more to it. If you, deeply, if you deeply understand that at that point in time, if the mind is very calm, very firm, and your wisdom is already very sharp, this can give rise to what this experience can give rise to what's called vimuti or liberation. Greed, hatred and delusion, they will be temporarily suppressed and this gives rise to a, a form of what we call like a temporary liberation. So all this, all this arises from our, our willingness to do meditation and uh, our intent on how deep we want to make our, our own practice and this deeper understanding that we gain from meditation you'll start to see that you look into this body and you'll see this physical form, you'll start to see it and you, it's compared, it's, you can compare it to like a house that's on fire. You know, obviously if you're trapped in a house that's on fire, you're going to do everything you can to get out of that house. And so you'll see the body is just simply the same, it's something that's on fire, it's something that you need to, you need to get out of. You'll see the whole world in this, in this light, you'll see the whole world is something that's burning and that you need to escape from. The whole world is burning with the fire of greed, hatred and delusion and you have to find some way to escape from that. If you don't try to escape from that, in the end you're just going to die a, a, a worthless death, you could say. So when the mind does see this and the mind starts to understand this a lot more, this is what really gives one the inspiration to, 
try to get out of samsara, try to get out of uh, the cycle of birth and death. Because everything within the conditioned world, the sankharas, they're all just, they're all impermanent. Everything that's here is impermanent. It's just arising, remaining and passing. And this is just, this is a constant, constant flow of things that just keeps going on and on and on like this. All these things in the world, they have, they really have no inherent core or inherent meaning or any inherent sort of meaning to what, uh, that you could, you could, they have no inherent core or any meaning that you can identify with. So all the wealth that you might have uh, accumulated while you're, while, while you're in the world, everything, you have to leave it all behind, all the wealth, all the family, absolutely everything that you've acquired, you have to leave behind. So if you investigate death in this way, you're going to start to see, you're going to start to see these things and understand these things a lot more. Now this is, once again, this is wisdom arising. Um, and if you do this death reflection, this is something, it's very similar to, uh, to Vipassana. And although it's by the books, it's considered a samatha object, a calming object. When you really investigate death and you make the mind calm and you start to see through these things, it becomes a Vipassana uh, meditation object as well. When the mind moves to a deep level of calm, like upajara samadhi, you know this, that's when it's very easy to see this body and understand this body for what it actually is. You'll start to see it as, as in, a, in this true state that it is. It, this body is something. It's not beautiful. It's not inherently beautiful, although we attach to it a lot and we think it's beautiful and we uh, identify that this is, this body looks good, that body doesn't look good. In reality. This body is just what it is. It's not a beautiful, it's not a beautiful entity. Once you start to see this, you see the asuba of the body. You'll see there's no beauty there. This is once again, this passion will start to arise in the mind. And this passion here, it's not something where it's like a dry dispassion. You feel uh, sad or dissipated. This is this is a dispassion that brings about uh, rapture and happiness, pity and sukha within the mind. You'll look at a body, and you know, even if you see a corpse, you'll start to see the beauty within a corpse. You'll see the, that goodness comes from abandoning. Goodness doesn't come from attaching. The more you see the beauty in that corpse, the more beautiful the mind will become. Uh, the more you see the body is not beautiful, the more beautiful the mind inherently becomes, the more radiant it becomes. Because what's happening at this point in time is you're starting to win over the defilements in the mind. You're starting to be able to control the flow of the chilesas that are, that are pouring out of the mind. So what this technique, you, you can say, is this uh, using uh, a suba or death to investigate. What we call this is wisdom developing samadhi, using wisdom to develop calm in the mind. The more you do this, the more you investigate using wisdom, wisdom to develop samadhi. You'll, you'll start to see things deeper, so from, from the coarse to death to a bit more refined to seeing the body as, as not beautiful, to even more refined to start to see the body as simply just a combination of elephant, combination of elements. You see, you see the body as just a combination of the water element, the air element, fire, earth. Once again, this is, this is according to the books, this is uh, Samatha Kamatan. But this is you know, actually, when you really get down and do it, this becomes vipassana, this becomes wisdom as well. 
So, but if you find that you're investigating too much and you're using the mind too much and it's just this uh, thinking going out of control, about, even if it's just thinking about Dharma, the mind will start to get tired. So that's the point where you have to pull the mind back and you have to come back to something like the breath, just simply watching the in and out breath and to make the mind calm again. You do this, uh, you make the mind calm until you feel that the mind has gathered some strength again. And when the mind has gathered strength, it's gathered that calm, it's rested for a period. <clears throat> you can go back to investigating the body, seeing it as, as a suba, seeing it as elements, seeing death, all these different kinds of things. And if, if you are able to make your mind calm and develop good deep samadhi, this investigation it will be a lot easier and it will bring fruits a lot quicker. But if, it, you know, if, the, if the mind isn't strong at that point in time, you know, this doesn't matter. Really try to use this investigation of death because this is something that will really cut away at the very coarse chelases that you have in the mind. Uh, when Ajahn Chah was teaching, when Ajahn Chah was teaching, he never, he never itemised and said, you know, this is that part of the Satipatthana Sutta, that's the other part of the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, what he, what he always taught was just to develop mindfulness and all of the Satipatthana Sutta, it, it's, it's encompassed in that, just in developing mindfulness. Yeah, for example, Gayanu uh, Pasana Satipatthana, the uh, investigation of the body. You know, all this is, all this stuff that I've been talking about is, 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 is in Gayanupasana. You know, simply just knowing the breath going in and out. This is, this is Gayanupasana Satipatthana. So when you do this and when you start to develop experience in meditation and experience in investigating the body, you go back and you read the Satipatthana Sutta and you, you start to see how it, it's applicable and how it works and you know for sure that this is what the Buddha was, was aiming at when he, when he taught this, this Sutta. When you do these different Dhanupasana uh, 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 practices, watching the breath, death, asubha, the elements, you'll, you'll really start to find out the meaning of what the Satipatthana is about. Uh, when you practice and you see the breath going in, you see it coming in and coming out, this is really, you're starting to understand the body, you're starting to see the body for what it actually is. When the mind becomes still, you'll know it, the body clearer and clearer. The more the mind becomes still, the more the factors of uh, vitaka, vijara, piti, sukha, egakata, the more they start to arise and eventually the mind gathers together as one. Once you've got the mind to this point and the mind has developed this deep level of calm and is at one, if you investigate the body at that time, especially if you investigate the elements at that point, you will really start to see and really clearly understand that this body, there's, there's no inherent self within this body. The body is just something that's it's inherently empty and at that point in time the mind breaks through and starts to see this and the mind eventually, be, and the mind will become empty. Because of this strength of this clear seeing and this clear seeing into emptiness, the mind will, you can say, it will move into liberation at that point in time, what we call the goturable chitta. Um, this is where the mind is it's temporarily liberated. 
um, it, what happens at this point is the mind will push through and see Nibbana, but then it will come back again. Um, when you read about this, when you read about the Gautara Bhutita in the, in the suttas and things like that, this is something that can seem very, very confusing, very, you can't conceptualize how this actually works. You can't understand how, well, how can you be an unenlightened person, uh, 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 Patujana, and then you can go to a, an enlightened person, an Aryaton, and how can you go back and forth between those two? It's, the analogy they give in the suttas is, is like, you have one foot, one foot, is it in the stream or across the stream and the other foot still on land. So once again you read this and you conceptually try to imagine what this is about and this really, you can't, you can't really understand it conceptually and you become confused about it. You think, you know, okay, if you've got one foot in, why can't you get both your feet in, into Nibbana? You know, what's actually happening at that point in time is, is like, yeah, you've got one foot in but you still haven't totally let go yet. You've let go to one level, but you still haven't completely let go. So you still have, although you have one foot in the Dharma, you still have one foot in the world as well. You're letting go, you're abandoning. It isn't, you haven't still haven't, haven't let go 100% yet. And basically, the more refined defilements of greed, hatred and delusion are still pulling you back into the world. Although the coarser, the coarser defilements are, are gone, there's still these more refined defilements in the mind. You know, you really haven't, you really haven't totally got rid of that sense of self yet. There's still a lingering of that sense of self there. And at that, what's happening as well is the path, the the, the path factors at that point in time, although they've gathered together, they haven't gathered together in its full. It's, it's full power yet, you know, they've gathered together and it's very, very strong and it's, it's made a lasting impact. But the full path factors gathering together, this still hasn't happened yet. But what has happened at this, now, once you've had this experience, you know for sure what the path of practice, what you have to do next, what you, um, you'll know for sure that this path of practice is what leads you to liberation. There's absolutely no doubt in the mind anymore that this, this following this eightfold path, doing these kind of practices, this is what leads to liberation. And if you keep doing these things, eventually full liberation is going to arise. When the mind experiences this, the mind is very, it's very still, it's very quiet at all times. And the more it's in this state, the more it will see this body as, as simply just an itcha dukkha anatta. You see these phenomenon just arising all the time and passing away. The mind at this time, it becomes very empty, very spacious. So, this is, this is why all the, all the great teachers, they, they teach you when you learn to make the mind calm, investigate the body and go back and forth like this as much as you can. Because really your, your attachment is in the body. Your, your attachment is towards the body. You are still very attached to this physical form. You know, even if you think you might have very good samadhi, your mind might be very calm and you think you can just go to investigating the mind. The reality is your, your mind isn't strong enough yet. You have to get past this more coarse, this more coarse aspect of the practice by, by getting through the body. 
you know, because you start to think, you know, the mind's got a little calm, so maybe I should just move straight into investigating the mind. But this, this is really, this is delusion about your own practice. This is, you know, deluded, a deluded sense of where your practice is actually at. So at this point in time, when, when the teachers say, when the great Kulbarajans say, you know, use this calm to investigate the body, you have to listen to them. Uh, if you, if you believe, if you start to believe different kinds of teachers that haven't seen into the Dharma, um, and if you follow, if you follow those teachers that say, oh, you know, you don't need to develop this calm, you can just go in straight into investigating the mind, you're gonna, you're gonna become more and more deluded in your, in your own practice. So you should always use that calm to come back and investigate the body until you've been able to break through the body. Once you can do that, that's when you can move more into investigating the mind. For example, with Ajahn Anand, he's, in his fourth panza, his mind was, he just started to develop very, very deep calm in the mind. Um, periods of very deep calm. And so he went to ask Ajahn Chah this, this same question, should I just go and investigate the mind? But what was happening was, although he was experiencing some periods of calm, his mind wasn't calm continuously all the time. You know, and so when he actually asked Ajahn Chah, his mind wasn't very calm at that point in time either. So you have to really look at the mind and you have to look at it within the present at all times and um, look at it in the present and what you can see just in your daily, you know, your daily dealings with the world and everything that's happening in the world, you can, if you really look at the mind in the present you'll see that the mind is really, really attached to the body. Everything that we do during the day is because of the body. You know, the more you can do this and the more you can break through this sense of atta- this attachment to the body, the more you can get rid of this sense of self. And the more, if you can, if the mind has become very, very powerful, you can get rid of, uh, Sakayaditi, Wichikicca and Silabhata Paramat, which are the three fetters that, once you can get rid of these, one becomes a Sotapanna. These three fetters, just to get rid of these, this is something that's just majorly important. This is something that's huge already. If you get rid of these three fetters, the other seven, you know, are, you know, from Sakatagami to, to eventually to Arahant, this, these other seven, they don't take too, too long to, to get rid of. But just to get rid of these three at the start, this is something very, very big already. Um, if you can get rid of these three fetters, there'll be, you'll only, at the most, you'll only be come back to be born uh, uh, seven more times before you reach full enlightenment. If one already has a lot of barami, one can, can become an arahat in just, after becoming a sotapanna, becoming a, an arahat in just one life. If you've got sort of medium-sized barami, it may take about three, four lives. If, if the barami is not quite as strong, you know, it might take you seven lives, but even this is, is, is very, very good anyway. You know, but... <clears throat> but even though you've got rid of these three fetters, you still haven't totally destroyed uh, the causes for further birth. There might only be seven left, but you're still, you still have to spend some time in samsara. Um, and for us now, you know, anyone that hasn't, hasn't even got to these three fetters yet, you know, we still, we, it's still going to take us a long period of time to destroy these, to, to get to that point where we're becoming a sort of punter. 
uh, we'll still have to spend time in samsara. And, you know, we've already been in samsara for a, a very, very long time. So if we don't take this initiative now to practice to work towards that, we're going to spend even longer within samsara. Uh, the less we practice, the more we're stuck in the cycle of uh, uh, kilesa, kama, and mibaka. This cycle just perpetuates and just keeps going on and on and on. And unless we practice, we'll never get out of this, we'll never get out of this cycle. So if we keep our mindfulness within the body, the, the quicker it's going to be for us to break this cycle of, of kilesa, karma and vipaka, to cut the cycle. The more we see this body as simply just elements, the, the, the quicker it will, it's going to be for us to cut this cycle. Once you see the body as just simply elements, what will happen at that point in time, the mind and the body will separate and you'll see that this body is something that's inherently not self. You'll see that it's just something that's empty. Now this isn't something that you... This isn't an intellectual understanding of, of, of this experience. This is something that's deep and profound because it's arisen through your meditation. You know, this is true vipassana arising at this point. Once you know this, you, you know... You understand deeply uh, what the Satipatthana Sutta is talking about when it says it says you see the, the body inside, you see the body outside, you see both the body inside and outside, you see the arising, you see the passing. You understand this in its true sense and, and why the Buddha said this. Um, you'll see that everything, everything in your life is it's a part of the Satipatthana. You know, you move around, the body goes through different postures, you're eating. Uh, defecating, urinating, all these different things, all this is the Satipatthana. You know, the, the more you can investigate these things of a Subha, an Ichadukha, Anatta, you know, you'll see all this, is, all this is coming from the body. You'll just really see the body as simply just a body, there's no inherent self in it, it's just a, uh, a phenomenon that's, uh, that has arisen for a period of time. It's a combination of elements. Um, these different elements, you can break it down into cells, atoms, neutrons, protons. It's, you can break it all down. And basically what happens is the mind attaches just to this combination of elements that has is, that is arisen. So if you can do this and you can break through and you can start to understand and see this, this is, this is of the greatest benefit of anything that you can have in your life. This is the benefit of the practice. You know, obviously if you do things like dana, this is something that's very, very good. It, it starts to help you get rid of your greed a little bit. Um, if you practice morality, this is also very good. It, it, it stops you from uh, being too, getting too trapped into hatred and these different kinds of uh, negative actions. That's one level. But, but Really doing meditation, you know, this is this is where you gain the most merit. Although you have you have to do these other practices as well. It's not that you should neglect dana and sila, but doing meditation brings about the greatest the greatest merit, the greatest results. So once again, back to back to the start. You really just you have to to do this meditation. You have to keep investigating the body, keep investigating death, keep trying to control the defilements that are trying to spill out of the mind. You know, the more you start to think and start to theorize, you know, and try to try to intellectually get through this, you know, you really have to do your practice a lot more and really learn how to let go of the culaces, let go of the defilements. The more you let go of the defilements, the, the better the mind starts to feel. 
it, it, the mind starts to develop this sense of lightness and spaciousness and you'll, you'll see that the, the results that come from, from letting go of the defilements. You know, when you do this at the start, obviously it's, it's, it's developing samatha, it's developing samatha, learning to calm the mind. And the Ajahn, the Ajahn thought this as well. You know, you, you do these practices, you investigate death, and it's a, it's a samatha kamatam. But in the end, when the mind becomes very strong, and pawanamaya panya arise, arises, you realise that this is a form of vipassana as well. And the Ajahn, this is something the Ajahn saw in his own practice from, from, from doing this. When you do this a lot, and when you investigate death a lot, and when you start to make these kinds of breakthroughs, the path starts to gather together. The sila, samadhi, and panya they start to converge as one. The bodhi pakiyatam, the 37 bodhi pakiyatamas, they start to arise as well, and they start to gather together as one as well. When you, it'll get to a point when you're practicing like this, and you'll start to see parts of the body. Maybe you're investigating the skin or something like this. You'll see that a piece of the skin uh, as a, in the mind. You'll see the skin start to break away and maybe fall away onto the ground. And once it, once it hits the ground and you can see it disintegrates, you can start to, you'll really understand at that point in time, this body, this skin, this is not self. This is, this is not something that belongs to me. When you see this, when you have this experience, this is when the mind truly becomes purely radiant. This is where pity and sukha just becomes so overwhelming at this point. When you see this, this is when you really start to see the Buddha. You're, see, you're seeing the Buddha because you're seeing the Dharma. You know, the Buddha said this, one who sees the Tathagata, one who sees the Dharma sees the Tathagata. So when you see this Dharma, you see the Buddha as well. And once you understand the Dharma, and once you've seen the Buddha, you also see the Sangha as well, see what the Sangha actually is. This is not something you see outside in the world, this is something you see in the mind, this is a, an understanding that, that arises within the mind. So to get there, we have to start off with, with just developing faith and having that faith that this is something that's attainable and this faith is what encourages us to practice. You know, when Ajahn Anam was a lay person, this is uh, before he ordained as a monk, this is something that he had this faith and he had this belief that this, this was attainable. He'd do things, he'd go and uh, give dana, he'd keep precepts and he'd practice his meditation. And eventually, even at the time when he was a lay person, his mind gathered together and he started to, he saw through the, the conventions of the conditioned world. He saw this while he was still a lay person. Um, he saw that, you know, you, you can't, there's nothing in this world that you can take with you. Any, all the wealth in the world, it doesn't matter, it has nothing it can it can't compare at all to the to the wealth of the Dharma. The, at that point in time, his mind dropped into the flow of dropped into the flow of Dharma. You know, at the initially when he was a lay person, it wasn't this wasn't the stronger experience that happened later. When he practiced later, when he was a monk, he had a more profound experience and deeper experience. But you know, when he was a lay person, he experienced. Uh, uh, a, a, you could say a, like a lighter version of that same, that same, the same experience. Yeah, you know, at this, 
when you first experience these things, it's it's like a coarse sort of experience. Even though it is very, it is a very refined experience. It brings about a lot of happiness, pity, all these kinds of things. It's still coarse compared to when the mind truly breaks through and when the mind becomes uh, uh, breaks through and becomes truly breaks through to become a, a full sotapanna, moves from the gotrabul chitta through to a full sotapanna. When one does get to this point, it's like it's like a mountain has been lifted off. A mountain has been lifted off yourself. Um, and obviously, at the start, you know, you want these results and you want them very, very quickly. Yeah. You know, once again, the Ajahn was exactly the same. He he wanted he wanted the quickest way to lift this mountain off um, and the quickest way to become a sotapanna. So he was always sort of looking at Ajahn Chah and going, "When's he going to?" When's he going to tell the, the quickest and direct, most straight way to 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 see this? You know, he wanted him to explain in, in, in great detail and tell him exactly what to do. Um, you know, Ajahn Chah, just in general, he wouldn't teach like that. You know, he wouldn't teach. He wouldn't uh, give you specific instructions of you should do this A B C D E F G and do it to you give you instructions like that. But there were times he, he really did explain the path of practice very straightly, very straightforwardly. And what he'd say to do is, you know, you need to put forth effort in your meditation. You need to abandon greed, hatred and delusion. Do these practices. Do us uh, investigate the body as a suba. Especially for monks, you know, always be investigating Kesa Loma Nakadanta Tajo. Yeah, and always be investigating this body and asking yourself continuously, you know, is this body really our body? Is it something, you know, is it actually beautiful? Is it, is it, is this body actually beautiful? Are other people's <coughs> body actually beautiful? Like really investigating this body, um, looking inside the body and, and what's the body like inside. This is what is seeing the body in the body. You know, look at the organs, the heart, the liver, the, the intestines, the stomach, the bile, the, uh, the blood, all these different kinds of things. See these, see these, the, the body inside for what it really is. When you start to do this, the mind starts to feel very light and very, a weight has started, the weight is starting to be lifted off the mind. And once you once you start to do this practice more, there'll be no holding back. The mind will want to investigate more and more. Sensuality, uh, especially the lust for the opposite sex, will start to go down more and more. You know, there will be there won't be as much attraction to to other people's bodies. There won't be as much liking for for different kinds of bodies. So in this way, Lumpur Cha did teach us a straight way of practice and he taught the, very, the quickest way of practice. Um, and so, you know, we really have to follow his example and we have to practice him from what, he, from what he told us to do. You know, the biggest thing that we're all still attached to is, 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 is uh, the attachment to sensuality, this, this attachment, attachment to form and attachment to sensuality. Um, if the, the more you allow yourself to be um, attached to sensuality, it's like, it's like you're an animal caught in a hunter's trap if, and sensuality is the hunter. And so if you get, for an animal to be caught in a trap, once, once it's caught there, the, the hunter can come along, he can do whatever he wants with it, he can break its bones, he can kill it, he can do whatever he wants with it. 
if you get caught in the trap of sensuality, sensuality will, will be able to do whatever it wants with you. Um, you know, and in the end, eventually you'll, just, you'll definitely die from that. So, <clears throat> if the more the mind is caught in sensuality, the more the mind will be caught in this cycle of samsara. And every birth that you have, every birth that you experience, it, w- it will bring along this suffering with it as well. So you really have to see the danger in, in sense contact and having this liking and disliking for sense contact. Uh, when the eye sees a form, the ear hears a sound, uh, nose smells an odour, all these different kinds of things. When the mind comes in contact with this, you really have to be careful and not be caught in sensuality of these things and to see the danger in these things as well. Yeah, so this is this once again this is something that Ajahn Chah would talk about a lot. And you know, he would tell the monks to do this a lot and be very, very careful with sense contact. Um, and to understand sense contact when it arises. Um, it's one thing to intellectually know it, you understand it from the books, you think about it in the mind. Um, this is one understanding of it, but but to really know it you have to make the mind calm and you have to investigate sense contact as, as it arises when you're in your own mind and once you know sense contact and you know this sensuality and you know, uh, you know, this, um, you know the, the dangers of sensuality this is where you really start to know the Dhamma so all of us now we have this opportunity to, to experience this and we have this opportunity to practice as well because you really have to, you really have to see, and you really have to understand that your life isn't, it isn't very long. You don't have much time on this earth. You know, when Ajahn Anand ordained, he was only he was only 22 when he ordained, and and when Ajahn Anand ordained and he was 22, Ajahn Chah at that time was 59 when Ajahn Anand went to Wat Nam Pong. You know, this year Ajahn Anand is 59 and he's turning 60 this year. So 38 years have passed by and so that time has passed by very, very quickly. Um, you know, Ajahnanan doesn't know how much time he has left. Um, you know, and everybody's the same. When you're 20 and you're 30, uh, you're younger, you, know, if you don't sort of realise how quickly time's passed you by. All of a sudden, you look back and you're 60 and you're 70 and your life has just uh, flashed before you. So you really have to investigate this every day. You have to be seeing that you're constantly moving closer and closer towards death. Once you see this, you'll really have this sense of urgency in the practice. You'll want to get on with your practice. You'll want to build goodness. Um, what we're doing now, you know, we're studying, we're listening, we're, we're reading books and things like this. But what you have to do with this knowledge is you have to take it and you have to put it into the practice. Um, you know, for the for the monks here now, it's like maybe there's a, only it's only a temporary ordination, and you might be leaving very soon. You know, that's okay. You know, but but take what you've learned and take that out into the world and keep practicing. You know, but the, for those that are staying on, you know, this is you have to take these teachings and you have to teach yourself and you have to take these teachings into your own practice yourself. You have to do this practice a lot because eventually people are going to start to take you as an example. Um, so, if you only teach people but you don't practice this yourself, you know, this, isn't, this isn't something that's very worthwhile. You really need to teach yourself first and you need to be able to 
understand this first for yourself. You need to develop a strong foundation of sila, samadhi and panya within yourself first. You know, at the, this takes time to do as well. At the start you might only have a very little bit of samadhi. But the most important thing to do is to keep sati at all times. Don't let the mind fall into greed, hatred and delusion as much as it does. When the aramanas come up within the mind, don't follow these. Just have mind, try to have as much mindfulness there as possible just to see that these things, all these aramanas just arise and pass. The good wholesome states in the mind, they just arise and they pass. The bad unwholesome states in the mind, they arise and they pass. You know, everything that, are, that arises within the mind, it has to pass eventually. Um, but what happens is if we don't have mindfulness, when these, when these uh, states arise, we, we attach to them and we take these, these mental states as self. Um, we take greed, hatred and delusion as, as self as well. These experiences of greed, hatred and delusion as self. Um, but when, when you do have mindfulness there, you'll be able to see through this a lot more. Um, when you're practicing as well, don't, don't be too attached to your own sense of self. Don't be too attached to this sense of ditti mana that's arising from your greed, hatred and delusion. You know, don't look at other people and see other people as better than you, as worse than you or as equal to you. Don't uh, internally criticise or externally criticise other people. Just worry about your own practice. You know, the mind is just the mind. We all have these, we all have this greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. So you have, just have to work on your own, on your own practice. You know, you have to do all these, diff- you have to do many different kinds of things in the practice as well. Sometimes you have to work with painful feelings when they arise in the mind. You know, so when you're sitting a long time, you mightn't have that samadhi there to to deal with the the painful feelings, but you just have to have that mindfulness there. To, to deal with it, keep the mindfulness on that painful feeling and separate, separate the mind and the feeling. Um, you know, when Ajahn Anam was a lot younger, he would, you know, he'd, he'd sit, he'd sit meditation and he'd sit like outside and he'd let the mos- mosquitoes come and bite him. Um, you know, and you have to really fight through this. You have to really fight through these painful feelings and this, these feelings of agitation and feelings of dukkha wedinger in the body. It got to the point with Ajahn Anam where his, all his arms and all the sort of skin on his body where it was, where the skin was exposed, it was all black from, from the mosquitoes and he just let them, he just, he got to the point, he just let them bite him. But you have to understand his, the power of his mind at that time. Every time a mosquito bit him, it would give rise to pity within the mind. Um, and that was what enabled the Ajahn to fight through these uh, mosquito bites. You know, at that time he's, he was a lot stronger, a lot uh, younger. His body was in a lot better shape. Um, samadhi was really, really strong at those in those times. So, but this this is something that you can practice with as well. This is you know try it out. Try to practice with these uh, these feelings of dukkha vedana. Try to go go past the vedana and see that the mind is one thing and and the the vedana is another thing. You know, if if you do this practice with the mosquitoes, if if you know if you get bit by a mosquito and you get malaria, then then you're actually going to know what real real dukkha vedana is. Like you know, at the start you just have this little bit of dukkha vedana in your body from mosquito biting, but when you get the malaria from it, that's when true dukkha vedana will start to, to to come in and hit you. So when you do when you have these experiences, put your mindfulness on that vedana, 
and see that there's no self in the Vedanari. It's just, it's just uh, feelings arising and passing away. Once again, this is all part of the Satipatthana. Yeah, once again, this is all part of the Satipatthana. But when you're actually practicing, you're not separating, you're not separating, okay, this is Vedana and Upasana, this is Gayana and Upasana. Uh, when, you, when it arises within the mind and the body itself, this is just keeping mindfulness within the sphere of the body and this is the whole of the Satipatthana. Once again, Ajahn Chah, he didn't separate, separate these things. He didn't say, he didn't say, I'm teaching this part of the Satipatthana now, I'm teaching that part of the Satipatthana now. What he'd say is just do meditation, um, develop mindfulness, and this is where the Satipatthana will arise. You know, when you start to see the results in the practice, you'll see how how it, how the Satipatthana truly arises within the mind because the mind has this strength, the mind has this power, and the mind has this understanding. You know, so each and every one of us, we all have to be determined. We have to be willing to to practice as much as we can to get these results. You know, we. Especially us here as the monks, we, every one of us has this great opportunity at the moment. We've come and we've ordained in the lineage of, of, the, great for, of the Buddha and also the great forest masters, Lumpur Man, Lumpur Cha, practicing along those, <coughs> those lines of practice and that lineage of practice. Um, we know the path of practice now. This is something that's very, very valuable already. You can, we can see from looking around at these, these uh, beings, you know, within our, in our period of time, you know, Lumpur Man, Lumpur Cha, all these great uh, Kulvajans, that we can see that, that right there, that Maga, Pala and Nibbana is something that's true, it's something that's attainable, it's something that we can still all experience. We can you know, look at these great great ajans and we can see that they've ex- uh, experienced these high levels of dharma. We can aspire to that ourselves. You know, with with Ajahn Chah, there's so many stories that Ajahn Anand says he has, and you know, it's it's hard to think of them all and all the all the examples where he saw these kinds of things. You know, there was you know um, where there was a time for Ajahn Anand when he saw like you know like the the great power of Ajahn, Ajahn Chah's mind. Um, Ajahn Anand was a younger monk at that point in time and he was um, <coughs> he was off at a different place and he was doing some chanting and what he'd do every day is after the chanting and uh, chanting of metta he'd sit and he'd, he'd spread metta to Ajahn Chah and he'd say, oh you know, may my preceptor, may my teacher Ajahn Chah be happy and spread metta towards him um, and so later on, when Ajahn Anand went and like bowed to Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah just sort of looked at him and said, uh, "You know, it's like whatever the Kuvajan is, just leave him alone. He's, you know, he's fine already. If he if he's going to be reborn as a ghost, just leave him alone and let him be reborn as a ghost. You worry about yourself." So, you know, this is this is the point in uh, Ajahn Anand's practice and what we fall into a lot when we're younger. We think our practice is at a very good level and we think we have a lot of barami already. Yeah, but this is, this is actually really wrong thought. It's like, it's, like a very, it's like a very, very poor, impoverished person trying to give a multi-billionaire a dollar. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, this is, you know, although we think we're doing the right thing, it's like a 360 degrees turnaround of, of what, is, what is sort of right and appropriate at, the, at these points of time. 
and this arises from, you know, it, it, it comes from a good place, it comes from faith, but sometimes our faith is too much and it, it sort of deludes, uh, deludes our, our understanding of the way things should be, the way things are, sorry. Um, yeah, but and so sometimes we have too much faith, and we think we, you know, we, uh, we have too much faith. And um, so, for example, there was a time when it was raining, and Ajahn Anam was was looking after, looking after Ajahn Chah. He was he was upatarking him and and sort of walking along with him. It was raining. It was raining out very very hard, and at the boat at Nampapong is very slippery when it rains. There's puddles and all these kinds of things. So Ajahn Anam sort of had the thought, it's like, oh, Ajahn Chah is fantastic and I've heard all these great stories about him, he has all these psychic powers. You know, there's, there's, this, there's the stories in, in uh, Nampapong, a lot of the senior monks have told the stories about how Ajahn Chah could actually, uh, following, following him one day on Pindabat and Ajahn Chah would walk along, there's a puddle and he'd sort of rise up and sort of float across it. He's, you know, he, his feet didn't get wet, all these kinds of things that he could sort of... Um, uh, yeah, hover across water and all these kinds of things. So Ajahn Anand at that time was like, yeah, Ajahn Chah's great, he can do all these things, it's fantastic and he can hover across water and all these kind of things. So Ajahn Anand was holding the flashlight at that point in time and Ajahn Chah, he was walking out with Ajahn Chah and he didn't, Ajahn Anand thought, I don't need to turn the flashlight on, Ajahn Chah can just float over the water sort of thing and Ajahn Chah's looking, he's like, what are you doing, turn the flashlight on, I can't see him, you, you're going to make me fall over. So, you know, you know, so we do have this belief and we have this faith. This is a good thing. But you know, Ajahn Chah, that's, that wasn't the way he taught. He didn't teach us just to simply believe these things. What he taught us to do is he taught us to have mindfulness, and he taught us to have mindfulness in every situation. You know, like another example of a, a, a novice that, that ordained at that time. This novice was. Uh, when he when he came and ordained, he's um, when he came and he was very intent. He was like he um, his parents wouldn't let him ordain, so he he lied on the floor and he fasted for three days. Um, and he said, "If you don't let me ordain, I'm just going to lie here and die." Um, and so before he even went to Nampapong, he'd already shaved his head and he was ready to ordain um, when he got there. And Ajahn Chah sort of looked at him. He's like, "This this guy's sort of strange." you know what I mean, but strange in a good way. Um, and so Ajahn Chah asked this, this, this would-be novice sort of thing, he's like, oh, why do you want to ordain? And, and, this, and this, 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 this would-be novice said to him, he's like, oh, I, I want to I develop psychic powers, I want to learn to fly. Um, and Ajahn Chah said, that's, that's not a good reason to ordain, like, birds can fly, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing special about a bird. Um, he said, but what is, what is the most worthwhile when you ordain is to, to be able to fly away from greed, hatred and delusion, to rise above and to fly away from greed, hatred and delusion. This is what you ordain for. This is, this is the best kind of aspiration to have when one ordains. <coughs> so Lumpachar taught, taught Sati, uh, sorry, Lumpachar taught, taught his monks and taught people to, to develop, uh, Satipanya or, or mindfulness and wisdom. This is what he was aiming at. So you have to follow the path of Ajahn Charan to develop uh, Satipanya. If you do this, Magapala and Nibbana will, will definitely arise in the mind. There's no need to doubt that it, that it won't come about if you practice uh, mindfulness and wisdom. Even if you do 
initially have doubts. It doesn't matter. Just with those doubts, you just keep practicing. So even if the mind's doubting, just keep practicing. <coughs> Sorry. So even if there's doubt in the mind, you just keep practicing. You know, there might be doubts overflowing the mind, but it doesn't matter. Just keep practicing. When you get to the point, when you see through and you break through and you see the Dharma, there'll be no more doubts then. Um, and you'll be able to truly understand and, and know what Lumpur Cha was, t- was pointing out. This was the true, the true way. Uh, doubting, it doesn't matter. Don't pay any attention to it, even if it's there. Uh, because doubt is one of the m- biggest hindrances in the mind to developing mindfulness and wisdom. So, for example, an example of that is once if we try, we think, okay, I'm going to do Bhutto, I'm going to develop the, the meditation where Bhutto in the mind. We try it, we go butto, 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 the mind isn't calm. Um, we try it for a period of time, it's like, ah, oh, this isn't working, I'll change. You change from this kamatan to that kamatan, you just keep changing. You know, Lumpur Cha would say it's like, you know, you can't, you can't practice like that. It's like, that's like planting a tree and then, you know, walking over to it the next day and pulling it out again and looking at its roots and saying, uh, I wonder if the roots have grown yet and then sort of putting it and planting it in another place. Um, you know, this is this is a, this isn't your job when you plant a tree. Your job is to water the tree, put fertilizer on it, um, make sure bugs and things don't get on it. You know, if you do these things, if you put in these conditions, the tree will grow by itself. Um, so for us in our practice, it's the same thing. Even though the doubts and things might be there, all you need to do is develop mindfulness and keep doing the practice, and eventually samadhi is going to arise. Um, if you develop mindfulness, this is what's going to have the most benefit. This is what's going to move the mind towards towards the Dharma quicker and quicker. You know, mindfulness really is the most important part of the practice. Um, even even if you don't have a lot of samadhi there, your samadhi isn't very deep, you don't have to get to the, the very, very deep levels of samadhi, but mindfulness, mindfulness at all times, this is the most important thing. Yeah, you know, uh, because samadhi isn't going to be something that's there every every moment of the day, but but mindfulness is something that can be there at every moment of the day. So, for example, Ajahn Chah would say, you know, go into a go into a cremation ground, go deep into the forest, and sort of, you know, to 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 develop your practice. Yeah, you know, and these things they're, they're really not easy. Um, uh, they're really not easy, and it's like you're putting your life on the line when you go into these sort of situations, but. You know, you have to go in with the attitude is like, you know, um, if I die and it's not better, I die, it doesn't matter. But, you know, I'll die to make it, to make the mind better. I'll die to make the practice better. So, Ajahn Anand would do this. He'd, you know, go and follow Ajahn Chah's advice and go deep into the forest, go to a, go to a cremation ground. Um, Ajahn Anand went with Ajahn Somchai uh, in the first time sort of thing and they went to this cremation ground. And this was a big piece of forest. It was like 400 rye. So, um, and Ajahn Anand and Ajahn Samshai would go to, they went to each corner of, of this, this 400 rice. So that's about, they're about a kilometre apart. Um, you know, and going in there, it's very, very scary, very sort of gloomy, dark, you know, dead bodies around and all these kinds of things. And so you, in the daytime, before you go in there, you're like, oh yeah, this is fine, I'm going to go in, this is, I'm going to really practice and great. But then when it gets dusk, and you start to walk in. That's when the fear starts to. That's when the fear starts to kick in. 
and you start to doubt yourself and say, oh, you know, maybe I, maybe there's no need to go in there tonight. It's a long way away. All these different kinds of things. So, but you you have to push yourself through that. You know, even if you're feeling if you're feeling scared. Um, you know, that this at this time, this is where mindfulness is really, really important. You know, if you keep your mind with butto at all times, you know, the fear is not going to arise. Um, so, walking into this cremation ground, it was like, you know, it was a long way in the walk, and you know, you know, the mind starts to starts to play tricks on you and all these kinds of things. And it's like you have this, you know, like this, you know, how you say that that that's that goosebumpy, spooky sort of feeling on the back of your neck that you always sort of feel like somebody's following you and somebody's watching you. Um, this is something Lumpur Chow would say. It's like, you know, if you're going into a place uh, where, there's, where there's ghosts, you know, you're going to have that goosebumpy sort of uh, icky, cold feeling. But if you go into a place where there's like a tiger or a dangerous animal, you're going to feel really, really hot. Um, so, you know, Ajahn Anand's walking in and he just had this feeling that something was like following him and sort of just, just right behind him, he kept sort of looking over his shoulder. Um, but, oh sorry, no, he, but he, he sort of said, it's like, I, whatever's behind there, I, I can't look back, I can't look back to it. But when he actually got into the place where he put his umbrella tent up, you know, he realised, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing there behind him. Um, looked around and got down to the practice and he saw that there was no sort of ghost following him and haunting him or whatever. Um, you know, later, as Ajahnan's practice got deeper and he had more understanding of these things, he realised when you go into these places, um, the sort of like the guardian spirit and, and, even, and even some of the ghosts, you know, they'll basically what they'll do is they'll follow you in there and they'll send you in there. It's like, and they're sort of looking after you. It's like, it's like when a host, when you go to somebody's house and the host comes out and greets you and, 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 and takes you into his home. It's, it's, the same, it's the same kind of thing. These, these beings are just looking out for you and it's like you know, making sure that nothing bad happens to you when you're in their, when you're in their place. But you know, when we when we don't have this understanding, it's like you get this feeling and you start to get afraid and you get frightened and you think the ghost's going to haunt you and all these kinds of things. Um, you know, and so when fear starts to arise in the mind, you you become afraid of everything. Everything that happens in the sensory field, you associate that with you know with the ghost and becoming afraid of all these different things. Um, think that everything you think that everything out there is the ghost coming get you, but um, yeah, sorry, you think that everything that happens is the ghost coming to haunt you but really all it is is just the mind playing tricks on you because the mind is in that state of fear if you develop mindfulness and you have that strong mindfulness you'll start to just see that you know, fear is just, it's just an emotion within the mind um, if you keep your mind with butto the mind will be calm and that, you know, that fear won't be there and that, that's that perception of these uh, uh, outer tricks happening, it, it, they'll, they'll fall away. When the mind is calm and there's mindfulness there, the mind becomes very, very, very brave and very courageous. You know, and at that point in time, even if you're you know, in a cemetery or whatever and there's a corpse or whatever there, it doesn't matter, you can walk meditation next to it. Um, you know, there's a dead body lying there, but it won't, it won't worry you in any way when the mind has that, <coughs> was that, when the mind has that courage and that peace. You know, and once you develop wisdom in the mind as well and you understand these things, that brings an even more sense of, even greater sense of courage and a greater sense of bravery into the mind because you understand what these things actually are.
Uh, but if you don't have this, 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 if you don't have wisdom, if you don't have mindfulness in the mind, the mind just becomes very, very confused, and it's, it becomes susceptible to having all these tricks played on it. So Ajahn Anand, you know, he he heard that Ajahn Chah went to all these different places, um, like like you know, there's a cremation ground called Nongkao and uh, get, yeah yeah Nongkao and Suwon. I can't remember where the other place is, um, um, another place. And so he heard that Ajahn Chah went to these places and so he went to these places as well um, and followed in the footsteps of Ajahn Chah. Um, also Ajahn Anand as well, he went to different places. He went to like Kaoya National Park. Um, and you know, he's, he's had, Ajahn Anand had his own sort of experiences there, you know, with like tigers and things like that. Um, he's saying like when you know when a tiger comes, it's sort of uh, before the actual physical the physical tiger uh, arrives. It's like a a winyan a winyan uh, will sort of come first, and you sort of have this this feeling that oh, there's a, a tiger's going to come, sort of thing. Maybe the winyan scopes the situation. I don't know. Um, so. You know, so you have this sort of feeling, oh, maybe a tiger's going to come. So, um, and you know, later that night, you know, yeah, he was Ajahnam was in his plot, and you know, a tiger did sort of come and sort of you know walked around, walked around his 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 plot. Um, you know, you could hear it. You could sort of hear that sort of that low growl, that sort of, and you, know, you can hear the the light footsteps and all these sort of things. Um, uh, and at that time, it was like Ajahn Anand, you know, re- obviously realized the tiger's there, and you know, all he could really do is just sit there and sort of spread meta to the tiger. And um, you, he did have the initial thought of like, oh, there's a tiger there. I should, I've got a torch here. I should like shine it and see, shine it on the tiger. But then he realized that would probably be a really like stupid thing to do, and the tiger would most likely attack him. So he realized, oh, I better, you know, even even though I have this. The, the courage that comes from mindfulness and wisdom. I don't want to be you know, stupid as well and let the tiger attack me because I've shined a shined a light in its face. So, you know, you, although the mind has power, you also need to uh, understand the situation and don't be negligent in these kinds of things when you're with a dangerous animal. Um, another time. Another time. I'm not sure if this was himself. I've never heard this story. Um, but he, do you remember this poem where about the ten elephants? The ten, the ten elephants come, the elephant flapping his ears. Was that him or? It was him or Lumpusi, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, he said it was himself, but I'd never heard it. So anyway, he had an experience with um, elephants where he was, you know, they say, you know, never put your never put your umbrella tent up on like a on a on a on an animal's path or especially like an elephant's path. So he decided to try it out once and so he did it and you know, sure enough, like a big bull elephant came down and Ajahn Anand's just sort of standing there, it's like, Oh, this is this is this is not good you know, like and so and the elephant sort of started to flap its ears. Um, he said that's a sign of, that the elephant's happy. From what I understand that's a sign that the elephant's angry. Uh, but I, I don't know. I've never dealt with an elephant. So, um, but yeah. But then, like ten other, then with the big bull elephant was there. Then the other ten ele- and ten other elephants came down. And so, you know, the agent said, "What do I do now? I'm sort of 
I'm at the mercy of a stampede of elephants. So, yeah, the elephants like flapping his ears at him. So, you know, all all the agent can do was remain calm at that time, spread meta, and and you know, in the end, the agent just sort of walked past and walked away. The elephants, you know, the elephants didn't didn't do anything to him. And so, this is this is the power of meta. This is the power of the Dhamma. This it has the the power to to uh, subdue. Um, hostile situations you know when, when you're in the forest and you're in these de- uh, forest and deep places and you're um, staying in the forest you need to do these different chants like uh, the Karaniya Metta Sutta and all these different kinds of auspicious chants to ward off danger and to spread kindness to all the beings that are around Virupake, all these different all these different auspicious, auspicious chants and you really, another very important thing while you're in the forest as well is to really look after your morality, really look after your sila. Um, you know, if you don't look after your sila and you're keeping bad morality, that's when dangers are more likely to come and, and, and attack you or whatever at that point in time. Uh, you know. So there's a story of like, like Lumposi, I, this is, and this is where things started to get hazy in the mind because it's been an hour already so this is where I start to get uh, a little bit hazy in my translation he told the story of Lumpur Si of like when Lumpur Si was a contemporary of Ajahn Chah he was, he was like a disciple of Ajahn Chah but uh, uh, they were the same similar amount of punsas a little bit, he's a bit junior to Lumpur Chah um, give me a second sorry I told the story of he, when he was on Tudong once that uh, there was a, he was on Tudong with them. Correct me if I'm wrong here. He was on Tudong with another monk, and uh, this other monk didn't keep very good seal or whatever. And an elephant actually came along, and the elephant with big tusks come along and stabbed this this monk that didn't have that didn't have good sealer. Um, you know, Lumposi he went Tudong a lot. He went like you know uh, he went all the way into Burma. You know, and he saw he had all these different he had all these like experiences with uh, like elephants and all these different kinds of things. Especially he had a he had a he had an experience with a prata, a hungry ghost. Um, he saw this hungry ghost, and it had this very long like a very long snout, and it was trying it was trying to drink some water, <coughs> but it couldn't. You know, it couldn't. No matter how hard this prata tried, it couldn't it couldn't drink any water. It couldn't get any water. So Lumpusi saw it and he said, you know, why can't you, why can't you drink? And the practice said, well, this is, this was the karma I, I saw a, uh, when I was a, a human, I saw a, a Tudong monk came along and just simply just asked me for some water. And that person, at that time, they turned around, they refused to give the Tudong monk any water and they ran away. Um, and so now this was the karma from that, you know, he couldn't, this Pratha couldn't get any water, couldn't get any sustenance. Uh, another time, uh, Lumpusi was in the forest. Was in the forest, and he was like quite deep in the forest, sort of thing. Uh, you know, it was hard for him to get food. And one day, an elephant actually came up to him and had had picked some fruit and actually picked this fruit, washed it, and and put this fruit into his bowl. Um, you know, the the elephant sort of had this this you know. 
intuitive, uh, intuitive understanding that Lumpur was someone that was you know, very well developed in his practice. Yeah, but also the elephant was was some I don't know, being that had a lot of barami as well. So, and who was it? Was it Lumpur C? We went to C at 4 a.m. It was somebody else. I thought it was somebody else. Lumpur No, it wasn't Lumpur It was. We went to see him at 4 o'clock in the morning and he knew already. Lumpur C. Yeah, so it was Lumpur C. So. Ajahn Anand, when he was a younger, he was a younger monk, he, he went to pay respects to, to Lumpusi at one time and, you know, Ajahn Anand left at like 4 o'clock in the morning to get there, to, to get there in time to pay his respects to Lumpusi. And when he got there, Lumpusi is like sitting there waiting for him and he's like, you know, he, the first thing he said to Ajahn Anand is like, you know, I've, I've been sitting here since 4 o'clock this morning waiting for you. So, uh, uh, so, yeah, so Lumpasi was something, obviously he's very, very well developed sort of thing and he had these kinds of knowledges and you know, uh, uh, had someone who has a lot of barami as well. You know, uh, every, when he was younger, every year, you know, he'd spend the punsa in, stay in one place, but every year outside the punsa he'd just, he'd continuously be on Tudong. Um, so, you know, for all of us now, what we can bring into this, for us for now, it's like, you know, we see the examples of the Kulbhajans and we see the examples of these things that are happening. So this is something we have to take into our own practice, you know. You've read this in the books, you've heard the story. So, you know, now it's, it's time for you to go and try these things out. Um, but for, especially when you're younger, you know, don't go out on Tudong alone. Um, you know, you can really lose it quite easily at this at that point in time. You know, Ajahn Anand had that experience as well when he was younger. You go into these uh, very deep forests, you go into these frightening places and the mind really starts to spin out of control. Like, um, and Ajahnan had this experience. Ajahnan was uh, you know, fortunate because he had already had like uh, good samadhi, good mindfulness and all these kinds of things already. Um, you could see the mind starting to spin out of control so he, he was able to pull it back. Uh, he was able to go back into his, into his umbrella tent, sit and sort of calm the mind down again. But for most people, they can't stop that process and, you know, it can sort of send people crazy, it can um, send people off on tangents and all these kinds of things. So, uh, if you're going, if you're going to go off on Tudong, always take someone with you, um, you know, just to sort of, you know, when, especially when you're younger. Uh, yeah, like... Uh, you know, but everybody's everybody that's gone on Tudong, they've had these you know, these, these hard experiences. Yeah, you know, for example, Lumpur Cha. Lumpur Cha was someone. You know, he really he said this all the time. You know, he he put his life on the line for the Dharma that he taught each and every one of us. You know, once again, you know, he was he was willing to die for Dharma. If he like, if he didn't make the mind good, he was prepared to die for that. Um, and what he's taught each and every one of us has you know great benefits. So. Um, so even if you're ordained, if you're ordained, or even if you're a lay person, doing this practice, doing things that Ajahn Chah said, this is this will be of great benefit to you as well. Um, so for anybody who's a monk at the moment, you know, you have to really sort of look at your situation and understand that you have this great opportunity already. You know, you're, you've got these robes on, and what these robes are, they're like they're they're like the symbol of the arahants. They're the symbol of the enlightened beings. <coughs> Um, so, you know, you have to live up to that and you have to, you have to do what you can and you have to take this opportunity to, to practice according to what your, the situation that you're in now. You know, 
you have to develop a lot of mindfulness and you know but doing this it isn't just just practice 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 you know you really have to learn how to give up for other people as well you have to learn to give up your your core sense of selfishness um, uh, you have to help other people out you have to do things within the community um, and help out as much as you can you know Ajahn Chah would always say somebody who can do this somebody who can give themselves up for other people their practice is going to go along very fast, but if somebody's just very selfish and just wants to just wants to practice and doesn't want to help out and do these kinds of things, you know, their practice is actually going to go very very slow. It's counterproductive, uh, sorry, counterintuitive of what you actually think. Uh, what you actually think will will help your practice. You know, Lumpa Chao would always say is like you know you have to look at the requisites that we get as a monk. You know, lay people give these things to us to help us on our path to Nibbana so you know you really have to do as much as you can so the lay people will, will gain great benefit from, from giving these requisites to you um, you can see these things and you, you should see that you have to you know you have you have a responsibility there you have to live up to these things that the lay people are giving to you you have a responsibility to to use these these requisites not Overuse these requisites, but use them just so you can use them on your path to seeing the Dharma. So, really, just keep practicing, keep doing these things. Don't ever stop doing the practice, you know. But no moderation in in the requisites that you use as well. You know, these basic practices that 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 you talk about all the time. No moderation in in the requisites. Be restrained. Keep your morality well. Keep the Padimoka well. Do the practice. All these different kinds of things. These things, although he keeps emphasizing them over and over again, there's a reason he keeps emphasizing them because this is the path to Nibbana, so this is what you have to follow to get there. Um, you're saying every one of us can experience this, and it's like. Um, on the way, on the on on the once we're on the path, you know, different these different experiences uh, can arise. He had the he had the um, uh, somebody came and re- relayed the story to him the other day that they they had a dream and they and they they saw Ajahn Chah in the dream. And Ajahn, they don't remember the whole the whole of the dream. Ajahn Chah gave some teachings, but there was one profound thing that they remember Ajahn Chah saying to him. They'd say they said that. Um, Ajahn Chah said to him that the birth and death is exactly the same, they, they, they both have the same amount of weight. Um, so this is, this is something very, very profound and this is something that you can bring into your own practice. Um, you know, the birth and death, they're just two sides of the same coin. Um, you can see within the mind when liking arises and when disliking arises, they, they, have, the same, they have the same weight there. You know, your job is to not weigh them up. Your job is to let them go and put them both down. You know, so if you do this, this you know, the more you do this, the more you practice along what Ajahn Chah said and practicing these things, the more clearer, the more clarity you'll have and the more wisdom you'll have and the closer and closer you'll be getting to seeing the Dharma. You know, never look outside for the Dhamma, never look at the faults of others and go, this person isn't practicing well and all these kinds of things. What you need to worry about is your own practice. You worry about developing these good wholesome states in the mind. Worry about developing wisdom in your own mind. Build your own barami. Don't worry about other people's barami. 
So there's not much time left in the Pansa, so there's, there's only 15 days left. So everyone, we should all be very bhangjai to build this wisdom within our own mind. And one, and that's right. And another thing, it just sort of flicked in as well. After the talk, he, he was talking about Ajahn Chah and like amulets and things like this. And like Ajahn Chah wasn't very well known. Uh, he he didn't sort of uh, well known for amulets, but he did make there were there were some amulets made of Ajahn Chah. And um, there was one time Ajahn gave uh, sorry Ajahn Chah gave Ajahn Chah gave an amulet out to uh, one of the uh, what do you call them, Leon? Uh, medallions. He gave a medallion out to a layperson. This layperson wasn't actually keeping good morality. They were drinking. They were getting drunk. And what happened is the, the amulet, the amulet disappeared, and it actually came back to Ajahn Chah. Um, so if you get an amulet off a Kulbarajan, you have to keep very good morality as well. And um, uh, another instance, he Ajahn Chah gave one of these amulets to like a soldier they were fighting they were fighting with Laos at that time or something like that and he got you know he got shot you know and the you know uh, he the, the bullet didn't go through sort of thing so you know like once again imagine Chah there's all these stories uh, uh, how would you say like uh, uh, psychic power stories of Ajahn Chah that don't get told much but you know they're there so um, yeah <laughs> 